Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service and the occasional interview or ministry resource. We hope you'll subscribe. Now, here's today's message. Today's scripture reading is from Galatians 3 verses 23 through 29, and Galatians 4, 6, and 7. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Amen. Thank you, Lisa. And uh, thank you so much for leading us this morning, Andrew. And uh, to all of you, good morning and welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square. My name is Joe and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, now, for the better part of the spring, uh, we're going through a sermon series on the book of Galatians. Now, if you were to ask me, how is Christianity different from all the other religions out there, um, I would actually point you to this letter. Now, why? Because Paul basically spends the entire letter grabbing the shoulders of these people in the churches of Galatia and saying, why are you still living in the old religious ways of doing life when there's a different, better way to live? Now, every single passage in the book of Galatians and the passages that we have been looking at and that we will be looking at for the better part of the spring builds off of that main thesis and draws out different implications. And today's passage is an obvious and a clear example of that because if you were to, even if you were to take a, a, a cursory glance at the passage, it's pretty clear that there are two things that are being contrasted. Where on the one hand, there's this talk about the law Uh, captivity and the law playing the role of a guardian, and we'll get into all of those things. But that is contrasted with, on the other hand, this talk about faith and Christians somehow being children of God, right? It's very, very clear. And so what I'd like for us to do this morning, we'll we'll jump right into it. Uh, We have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, But uh, we'll contrast those two by looking at what this passage uh, tells us under three headings. First, We're going to see that this passage tells us that religion leads to captivity. 
Secondly, we'll see that this passage tells us that while the gospel leads to adoption, right? Religion leads to captivity while the gospel leads to adoption. But lastly, it's not enough for us to just know the difference between the two. But let's take a look at how to experience it. So first, religion leads to captivity. The gospel, second, the gospel leads to adoption. And lastly, we'll take a look at how to experience the difference. So first, how religion leads to captivity. Now for this point, uh, let me read for you uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses uh, 23 to 25 here. It says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now here, Paul says, before we are adopted as children of God, uh, the law played this role of a guardian in our lives. Now right away, there are two questions that we need to ask. First, what is the law? And secondly, what was the role of the guardian and how do they relate to one another? So let's go through these two questions. The law. And when we think of the law, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments, especially when we think about uh, law in the Old Testament. Right, Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, many of us may be familiar with it, uh, and it's definitely a good start. But Paul, when he is referring to the law here, he is actually talking about the entirety of the Old Testament law. And let me tell you, there were lots and lots and lots of them. And for those of you that were here last week, Michael talked about different categories of laws, right? There were uh, laws about ritual cleansing. There were laws about sacrifice to God, laws that regulated public health and safety, laws about which religious holidays to observe and how, uh, which foods were good to eat and which were not good to eat, not to mention all of the laws that pertain to ethics and morality. There were tons and tons and tons of these laws, and if you were to count them all up, I didn't do it by hand. I relied on other people who wrote about it. Uh, we are told that there were in total 613 laws throughout the Old Testament. And you were expected to obey all of it. And so here's what that meant for the people that were operating under the Old Testament law. It meant that the way you interacted with your family, the way you interacted with your larger community, the way you conducted yourself while at the temple, at the market, while you were at work, the way you treated your employees, at every single turn in your life, there was some law that would govern what you could or could not do. Right? That was the reality that the people of the Old Testament laws were living under. And so it makes sense that Paul then compares the role of the law to that of the guardian. Because what was a guardian? Well, it was a modern-day equivalent to some kind of combination between a babysitter and a tutor. And so a guardian of the house would be assigned to a child and was responsible for bringing the child to school and back. Uh, they were responsible for looking over their homework. It would, they would teach them manners and how to behave when they were out and about. And this guardian basically was an ever-present personality in a child's life, directing them where to go, what they should do, and how they should behave. And for the child, it didn't matter if you were the child of the most powerful, wealthiest person in the world, because you weren't free to wield the power and the privilege that would come from that power and wealth. Because everything that you did went through the guardian. Whatever the guardian said, uh, would go. Now here's the point that Paul here is making. 
Religion, as we know it, has a bunch of laws that direct us every which way you should go and demand to be, obey, to, demand to be obeyed. Right? So in a sense, they act as an ever-present voice in your life saying, don't go there. Right? Don't do that. You better not touch that. You better not eat that. You better not associate with that person. Don't think that. Don't feel that. Right? It's governing every aspect of your life. And so if you're listening to this, you may be wondering, yeah, no wonder religion feels so oppressive and restrictive. But let me argue with you this morning that this is not just a religion problem. But let me suggest that this is a humanity problem. Because whether you consider yourself to be religious or not, there are these voices in our heads, you know, let's call our conscience, that are constantly telling us whether we're on the right side of some standard or on the wrong side of it. There's this uh, quote that I got from an interview that I listened to earlier this week. Um, And it talks about how David Foster Wallace, uh, that great author, uh, once said this in an interview with uh, Rolling Stone magazine. He says, we all have this other voice. It's the voice that either tells us that we're doing fine or that we are a piece of, let's say, scum. And then he says, and I've realized that my job, my job is to make friends with that voice. And friends, when I heard that last line, I have to say it was just a dagger straight to the heart because I identified with that so much. See, that the, the voice, this conscience that is constantly telling us either that we're doing fine or that we're, that we're a piece of scum, that voice that we all have is the most intimate relationship that you and I are going to have for the rest of our life. More intimate than any lifelong friend that you may have. More intimate than any spouse. More intimate than any career. More intimate than what the satisfaction that you may get of what's on your resume, the square footage of of your apartment, what your bank account looks like, what diploma you may have. And friends, that voice, no matter how wealthy, no matter how powerful, how influential, how successful you may be, will never leave you. And is constantly casting judgment on you. Which means you can never fully enjoy all of the good things that you have in your life. Because again, you're constantly measuring yourself up against some standard. This voice follows you around. Now don't get me wrong, this voice may also drive you to do a lot of good. But the truth is you will always be held captive to that voice. So David Foster Wallace says, I mean, if you're going to be imprisoned by this voice, I mean, you might as well make friends with the prison guard because that's the best that you can do. And what that does to you is it distorts every relationship that you may have. God becomes distant because In your perception, he's no more than a judge who's constantly, constantly casting a verdict down on you. And because you're constantly comparing yourself to others uh, about whatever standard they may have, it becomes incredibly difficult to have genuine and authentic relationships because literally everything in your life becomes an addition where you're having to ask the question of, have I been good enough? 
And am I acceptable here? And if you and I are being honest with ourselves, we have to admit more often than not, we are not good enough. Because the standards that we have set for ourselves more often than not are impossibly high. And by the way, it's it's interesting that Paul uses the imagery of a child that is under a guardian because a Christian, for those of you that may consider yourselves to be Christian listening in here might say, oh, you know, I, I believe I'm a child of God and, you know, I'm a Christian so it doesn't apply to me. Well, actually what Paul is saying here is that it's entirely possible that you may, yes, be a child of God. And we'll talk about the implications of that in a moment. But he's saying it's entirely possible that functionally, though you may be a child of God, you're still living as if you're enslaved to that judgmental voice. That you're still living your life in fear of hearing the verdict, you are a piece of scum. Because that's what religion does to us. It leads to captivity. So that's the first point. Religion leads to captivity. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and other members of our church community. If you have questions about today's message, send an email to lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our Sunday worship service. Now, here's the remainder of today's teaching. But secondly, we also see that the gospel leads to adoption. Now, let me go uh, take us back to the beginning of the passage where uh, it said that we are held in custody under a guardian by the law, under the old religious ways of life. But take a look at uh, verse 25. It says, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And then, in so in, uh, and then it goes on to say, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Now, let me stop here. It says, you are no longer a guardian, under a guardian, guardian but you are now all uh, children of God. Now, when we think of the word children here, we think about young children But here, this is actually referring to grown children and their relationship with their father. And more specifically, I might add, Paul here is thinking about a very particular relationship that God is entering into with us. And it's not read for us today, uh, but it comes out in uh, chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, where it basically says, Jesus was sent into the world so that we might receive adoption into sonship. And so when Paul is referring to Christians as children of God, he's taking his cues from the Roman practice of adoption. That has some similar aspects to adoption today, uh, but uh, some different. And so in the Roman practice of adoption, it was, uh, it was done when a man who had an estate to pass down but didn't have an heir to inherit that estate. And so what he would do is he would adopt a person to be his son and that son would then uh, inherit uh, this person's estate. Now, <clears throat> this was never done uh, for a woman because women weren't given the rights to inherit their father's estate. But here, Paul is taking the concept of adoption and applying it to both men and women. So here's what he's saying. You all, regardless of your background, when you became a Christian, you became adopted sons of God. 
and all of the rights and privileges that come with it are yours. But what are these uh, rights and privileges? Right? What does it mean to be a child of God, and how does this answer the voice that's constantly casting a verdict on our hearts? And let me uh, give you an answer through three things. It gives us three things. A new identity. Secondly, an intimate access. And thirdly, a glorious inheritance. Now, I promise this isn't going to be a sermon within a sermon. I'll, I'll try to go through these fairly quickly. New identity, intimate access, and a glorious inheritance. First, a new identity. If you look at verse 28... It's fascinating here. It says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what this verse is not saying is that gender, class, racial distinctions, right, your cultural heritage, that those things do not matter. That's not what Paul is saying. But here is what he is saying. That no matter what your status is out in the world, Here, with God, all of you, all of you can be assured that the defining reality for you is that you are first and foremost uh, the child of the living God. And that has, friends, has the power to make all the difference in the world. Let me show you how. Uh, Back in the 90s, I attended a middle school uh, growing up in South Korea, and it was an international school uh, that was built for, you know, foreign dignitaries and, you know, missionaries and the like and expats and that kind of a thing. And I remember I knew this one kid. And in the middle of the year, I found out that this kid was actually a prince of a small country. <laughs> and so from then on, I, you know, I started treating him a little bit differently. <laughs> Because before he was, you know, just a kid, you know, but now he was a prince. He mattered. So I wanted to be his friend. <laughs> so I started being nice to him, you know, build that friendship. And then he left at the end of the year. <laughs> Who you belong to matters. And if we're being honest with ourselves, all of us carry the sense of question with us, right? Do we matter at the end of the day? Or are we just scum? You know, it's told that Ted Bundy, the famous uh, serial killer, the infamous serial killer, when he was arrested, he was perplexed by all of the attention that he was getting from the media and from, you know, all over the country for having killed all of these people. He just didn't get it. And it's told that at one point he grew so exasperated and he said, I mean, there are so many people. As in, what's the big deal? And friends, that's the anxiety that we carry with us. Isn't it? Out of billions of people, I am but one. Do I matter? But what Paul is telling us here in Galatians is that if you are a Christian, you can always be assured that you matter, that you are not a piece of scum, and that you are significant because of your identity, first and foremost, as a child of God. That you are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. 
And that is the new identity you get as adopted children of God. But secondly, we get intimate access. And for that, let me read for you uh, chapter 4, verse 6. It says, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, the word Abba here is purposely not translated, scholars say. Why? Because this word Abba is what Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, called God the Father. And basically, it was a term of endearment towards one's father, like dada in English, right? Or in Korean, which happens to be my mother tongue easily enough, is Appa. It sounds similar enough. And the point that Paul is making here is this, that if you are a Christian and God is your father, you now enjoy the same access, intimate access to the father that Jesus Christ himself has. And I have to say, how you address someone is a great indicator for the level of access you have, isn't it? Here's what I mean. There are millions and millions and millions of people in the world who get to call me Joe, because that is my name. But there are only two people in the world who get to call me dad. Only two people in the world who get to call me Appa. And that's my son and my daughter. And they have access to me in ways that no other children can have. You know, the one thing that I noticed with children is that the closer it gets to bedtime, the more involved they want you to be in their life. Right? <laughs> Put my son to bed, and I hear, Daddy, I'm thirsty. I say, okay, I get him water. All right, good night, buddy. I walk out. A few minutes later, Daddy, can I tell you about this awesome bird that I learned about today? I say, uh, really no. <laughs> but fine, tell me about this bird. Okay, good night, buddy. I walk out. Daddy, daddy, I have a question. What? If God is good, why is there evil in the world? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Go ask Jesus in your dreams. <laughs> But you know, in all seriousness, <clears throat> every single time I hear, that, I hear that word daddy, there's still, there's still a jolt of pride and that joy that flows into my heart. And I run to his room and give him my attention because that's what he needs from me. My friends, do you realize that God is like that with you? but infinitely more than any earthly father can be that for you. Let's think back to the Lord's Prayer that we prayed together early on in the service. Do you understand the magnitude of the access we get to enjoy when we say the words, our Father? If we did, that would change everything about our prayer life. Your prayers can be rambling on and on about the things that may be important to you, but may be absolutely inconsequential to God's priorities, but it doesn't matter. Because the doctrine of adoption guarantees that God's got his eyes fixed on you and is holding on to your every word. Now let me ask you a question this morning. Do you know that every time you approach God in prayer that you have a captive audience with him? 
that his attention is not scattered elsewhere, but is fixed onto you. I have to say, the happiest people in Lincoln Square this morning, I guarantee you, were the people who gathered here together for pre-service prayer. Those who are, have access to God the Father, who have God's undivided attention on them. Because that's the promise of adoption, an intimate access to the Father. But I have to say one more, <clears throat> because the third thing that we get is a glorious inheritance. Now, twice in this passage, right, once in uh, th- uh, chapter 3, verse 29, <clears throat> and again in chapter 4, verse 7, it says that if you belong to Jesus, you are a child of God, and if you're a child of God, you are also an heir. Now, <clears throat> I have to admit, I have s- such a hard time understanding this concept that God calls those who belong to him, his heir. It's like many things about Christianity. It sounds too good to be true. And it sounds too glorious for me to even think about, let alone articulate. But there's a passage in Romans 8 that at least gets my imagination going. And let me see if, you know, as I unpack this a little bit, it does the same for you. So Romans 8, verse 18 to 21, let me read parts of it for you. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now here's how Ray Ortland, uh, who's a Bible teacher, describes this passage. He says, all of creation, as beautiful as it can be, is in its current state, as beautiful as it can be, it's still frustrated. It's akin to a boiling pot, right, with a lid over it that's about to bubble over and burst out. He says, that's the current state of creation, But he says, when the children of God come into their own at the end of time, when we receive our due inheritance, he says, God will take the lid off. And the whole universe will burst forth with joy and freshness. And he says, we will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills before us shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands as Isaiah 55 prophesies. And you and I, whom God has adopted to inherit his loving intentions, will be there to experience it. All of it. Friends, let me encourage you, when you walk out of here this morning after the service, take in the world around you, the beauties of the park, that apartment that you walk by, perhaps every morning admiring it, wondering what it would be like to live in it. Do you realize it's not just a matter of that little apartment? Do you understand that if you are a child of God, you have the entire universe that is your inheritance? Do you, if I may dare put it like this, walk around like a spoiled child, like you own the place? Because that is what is coming to you if you are children of God.
Do you know this? Do you live like you know this to be true? Do you realize what it means to be children of God? At this point, we have to say, wait, how does, how does any of this in any way resemble any other religion in the world? Because it doesn't. It is unlike any other religion in the world. This is completely different altogether to be called children of the living God. Do you have this sense of courage and confidence and assurance that comes from knowing that you are called children of God? Now, I'm asking all of these questions, but here's a problem. For most of us, our imaginations are so limited that when we talk about the wonders of the gospel in such sweeping terms, it's hard for us to even wrap our minds around it, let alone our hearts. We don't live as if this is true. So we may know the difference intellectually, but functionally in the way we live our lives, we still live under the domain and the captivity of religion because that is what our hearts are used to, and we can't even grasp what it's like on the other side of the gospel. So we need to ask this question, how are we to live this out? And we'll close with this last point. How are we to live this out? Now, there are two ways that I like to talk about practically how you can experience this reality. Uh, One is more active and the other is more passive. So let me go through them. Uh, First, the the, the more, uh, let me go through the passive way first. Let's uh, first look at uh, chapter four, verse six. Again, because you are his sons, it says, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. It says, God sends the spirit into our hearts, and it is a spirit who on our behalf, together with our hearts, cry out, Abba, Father. Now, this is a mysterious process, but there, here's what Paul is saying. If there's, on the religious side of things, there's a voice that speaks into our hearts, that is constantly casting judgment on us. Here's saying, if you are a Christian, there's another voice that comes into your heart that overpowers that other voice. And this voice is a voice that convinces us that we are indeed children of God. Here's what N.T. Wright, a a New Testament theologian, uh, has to say. He says, it is a common Christian experience that that while many of the thoughts in our mind seem to come from the ordinary flow of consciousness within us, sometimes we find other thoughts which seem to come from somewhere else, hinting gently but powerfully at God's love, at our calling to holiness, at particular tasks to which we must give energy and attention. A key part, he says, of Christian discipleship is to recognize that voice and to nurture the facility of listening to it. It is or may well be the voice of God's own spirit. And one of the primary things the spirit says with which we find our own spirit in full agreement is that we are indeed God's children, God's adopted sons and daughters. Friends, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convince us that we are God's children. And instead of making friends with the voice of her conscience, the voice of religion, the practice, the practice of experiencing our sonship before God is to make friends with the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's to listen to him. It's to invite him to continue to speak to us. So that's a passive part of it, but there's an active part too. 
Because if you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 26 to 27, it says, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, right, baptism being an outward sign of an inward faith, uh, you have clothed yourself with Christ. Here, Paul is saying for you to have faith is as if you put Jesus on like a, a garment. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, <clears throat> think about it this way, right? Out of everything that you own, your clothes are kept closest to you, right? They're literally on your skin, right? They follow you everywhere you go. You may walk out of your apartment without your keys. You may walk out of your apartment without your phone, right? You, can, you may walk out of your apartment without your bag. But I guarantee you, I hope you <laughs> Yeah, never walk out of your apartment naked, right? It's kept closest to you. And what Paul is saying is to experience what it means to be children of God, to put your faith in Jesus means to day by day, moment by moment, by moment depend on and abide in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself described this in terms of the vine and the branches, right, in John chapter 15. Right, it's to be so acquainted with him that you can't go a moment without being reminded of some aspect of him. Right, how do we do that? That's reading the gospels, right? Hanging on to his words and his action is to think upon him, is to immerse your imagination uh, upon him over and over until he becomes the filter through which you see everything. Right, that's what it means to put on Christ. Now, what, what, why would anybody do this? Why would we be so obsessed over this one person? Why? It's, in, it's because in Jesus, we learn to be sons and daughters of God. Because he lived out perfectly what it meant to be a child of God. He knew who he was, what his identity was. He understood perfectly well what it meant to have access to the Father. He understood, and he lived with complete confidence and courage, knowing that he had a glorious inheritance waiting for him. Right? It's through his life that we understand what it's like to be children of God. But here's another thing. There's another thing that we need to remember. Not only do we learn to be children of God through his life, but it is through his death we can really experience what it means to be children of God. Because when we understand what it took for Jesus to bring us from captivity into the Father's arms, that is what is going to change us, to convince us that all of this is not too good to be true, that it is indeed true. Not just for the world out there, but for me. Because see, Jesus on the cross lost his sonship and was held captive by the judgment of God so that we, who deserve the judgment of God, can become his children. I remember not too long ago seeing videos of children at our border just taken, ripped away from their parents. And out of that scene, I will never forget just the agony on these children's faces. And I'll never forget the faces of the parents who had their children taken away. And I just started weeping uncontrollably. And you begin to think, what was it like for the father who delighted to shower Jesus Christ with such intimate access, who shared with him the glories of heaven from eternity past. What was it like for him to abandon Jesus on the cross? And what would it have been, what would it have been like for Jesus to be abandoned and to experience that, that abandonment? 
But friends, you and I need to understand that's what it took for God to bring us into his arms. Nothing less than for Jesus to be taken away so that we can brought in. So friends, do you understand this costly love? And even if you get a glimpse of an understanding, would you turn to Jesus? Would you learn from him? Because he himself, by spirit, will teach you what it means to live as children of God. To enjoy the Father's everlasting love and affection which speaks to you with a voice that says, this is my child with whom I am well pleased. May we at Redeemer Lincoln Square live with the Father's love on us, both now and forever. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we invite you now in this place. We ask that you would come into our hearts and cry out together with our own spirit, Abba, Father. And our Father, we thank you for all the privileges and all the rights that we enjoy as your children. And God, for those of us, especially for those of us that are struggling here in this room, we ask that you would make that reality a bright and living reality in our hearts. God, make us more like your children. May we live with the confidence, assurance, and the strength and the poise that can only come from knowing that we don't live with this voice of judgment following us around, but the voice of assurance that tells us that we are your children. And so by your grace and by your spirit and to your glory, may this be so. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning into our church's podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our podcast and we invite you to join us for worship on Sunday. We're located at the corner of West 64th Street and Central Park West. More details can be found on our website, lincolnsquare.redeemer.com. Thanks again for listening to the LSQ podcast.